Have you ever come to the end of a story, the end of a book, or the end of a movie, and had a little bit of sadness overcome you because that's the end of the story? What's unique about this Christmas story is that it's not over. It continues to have an impact around the world. And every year we tell it again, and it doesn't lose any momentum at all. Over the last three weeks, we have been talking about the Christmas story. We began with the prequel, going all the way back before time to talk about how God, before in eternity past, is planning all of this for our good and for ultimately his glory. We talked about really three parts to this unfolding sequel. First was creation in its perfection. Then we saw the crisis and all of the problems that resulted from our sin. And then we moved on to the covenant and all of the promises that God gave. And to me, this is just an, a, an incredible unfolding of God revealing himself in redemption to us. That was really the, the prequel. The, the, the main event, the main story was in Luke chapter 2, and that's what we discussed last week. And we remember these words, behold this child. To behold is to gaze upon intently, to, to capture all of the thought, to be able to, to think through the impact and the meaning. And Jesus, this child, was expressed by the four writers of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew said, behold the king. This is the fulfillment of all prophecy. This is the one who has been promised, this is the Messiah. Mark introduces him by saying, behold, my servant, quotes also from the Old Testament, that he was going to come and serve his father by accomplishing a particular task. And then Luke, behold the man. This is not just God, but it is man. It is human flesh living with us and among us who feels our pain, understands our sorrows, and who is able to give himself as a perfect substitute for our sins. And finally, John, John writes, Behold your God. This is God in flesh. And we marvel at that. And we went away last week just thinking how magnificent this child is, beholding and then believing. Now we're coming to the last part of this story, which is what's next? What difference does this make? We, we look back and we see the prequel, we see the main event story, and now the sequel. What impact, what lasting impact has taken place as a result of the birth of Christ? And I hope that you see this in a, in a large worldview, and I hope that you see this in your personal life, the difference that the birth of Christ has made and the lasting impact it can and will have upon your life. So I'd like to really break this down and answer the question, what difference does it make, in three ways. First of all, what difference does it make historically? What really happened? Secondly, what difference does it make doctrinally? What is the teaching that we're given through the Scripture here? And finally, what difference does it make practically? And I always like to get to this point to talk about the practical implications, the result of what's taken place. 
And you know, it's really important to understand that you, you can't really give practical advice to someone unless it rests on something that's true. So we go back to the doctrine or the teaching that rests upon the historical facts that we read about in Scripture. So let's look at this, this passage today. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 4 and verses 4 and 5. And we're going to begin by talking first about historically. But let's read the text first. Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And what that verse is really telling us is that the birth of Christ has changed everything forever. Historically, what does this mean? We're starting to connect the dots, because if we go back to the Genesis account and be, before even the Genesis account of the eternal God speaking, we start to connect the dots all through this story. It's not a bunch of stories. It's not just a, a collection of a lot of books and writings that we all put together and call the Bible. It is one fluid story about a central person who is Jesus, who has made all the difference in this world. And, and when you read the New Testament account and look back to the Old Testament, you connect all the dots. You see, this has been working through thousands of years and continues on into eternity. So God's Word really wasn't given to us to prove it. In other words, God's not like a, some, some young person who's just saying, I'm going I'm to prove to you. He's not, he's not trying to prove it, but the writings of Scripture do authenticate. They do validate. They do reinforce the reliability, the authenticity, and the credibility of the Scripture. And remember this, that everything we believe or we say we believe should rest upon the truth of God's Word. When we have God's Word, the Bible, before us, to me, this is so important for us to understand. If you say, oh, I believe this, or I believe this, or I hope in this, or I, I'm trusting in this, what does it rest upon? Paul says in Romans 10, 17, that faith, and this is how we live, faith comes by hearing and hearing by God's Word. So the more you know God's Word, can recall God's Word, can look it up and see it, the stronger your faith will be. And for every one of us, faith, faith is believing something you can't see. It's trusting in a God that, that you can't visibly see or physically touch right now. And yet it's true. It's like, it's like the wind. He says it's like the wind that, that blows. You see the effect of the wind. You say, well, it's not real. It's not true. But it is true because you see the, the impact and the, the effect. So God gives us these facts. He gives us his word and gives us a credible account. In verse 4 of our text today, it says, but when the fullness of time had come. So when God talks about time, remember God himself is timeless. He has no beginning or ending. But all of these events in this story happen within the context of time. And he describes it this way. He says, when the fullness of time, what does that mean? The fullness of time. It is, it is, it's really maybe a, a good illustration is, is a woman who is pregnant and she has come to full term. Everything is, is ready for 
the event, the main event to happen of that birth. God is timeless, but we live in time. And the fullness of his life, his birth, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection is now upon us. It is the centerpiece, if you think about this, of all human history. The birth of Jesus, and we grow up hearing about B.C., before Christ, A.D., after Christ, and of course, this is how it's viewed. It's been viewed all along as the birth of Christ is the center point. It is the centerpiece of all human history, and Jesus is also that centerpiece. The completion of all these things. Now, what's, what's really interesting, before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give us the, the current story of the birth of Christ, no prophet had given a message of God, and no one had written anything for 400 years. So before that, we have the Old Testament. And for a long period of time, we read about events of thousands of years, literally from creation. We read about Noah. We read about Moses. We read about Israel. And all the way up to the last book of Malachi in the Old Testament, we have revelation from God. And when we hear from God and we, we learn from God, that gives us a certain level of comfort. But there were 400 years from the time that Malachi wrote his book, his letter, to the birth of Christ. Four, we call them 400 silent years. Have you ever felt God silent to you? I have. And I've prayed, I've talked to God, I felt like, God, I need something new, I need something fresh, I need for you to show me the way to go. And it can be really frustrating when you don't feel like God is speaking to you in some way. And during these 400 silent years, we need to remember that God was silent, but he was not still. He was active, he was working, he was unfolding his plan. So this unfolding story of Christmas is still moving on. It is still marching on. And so when we come to Luke chapter 2, the fullness of time has come in God's plan. And I think it speaks of God's great sovereignty. I believe that it speaks of his planning all the way through. What about the world situation? It's not just the fullness of time of God's plan, but I think when we looked at the world at large during this time of the, the turn from B.C. to A.D., the birth of Christ, here's what was going on in the world in describing this fullness of time. There was a, a progression from, if you go back to Malachi, Isaiah, to these prophets, where Babylon had destroyed Israel led them away in captivity. And the prophets talked about, you're going to have kingdoms overtaking kingdoms overtaking kingdoms. And all of this, God has a plan to bring about Messiah at this time. So you have Babylon, who was eventually conquered by Persia, who was eventually conquered by the Greeks, Alexander the Great, who were eventually conquered by the Roman Empire. And, and the present time in Luke chapter 2 is the whole world is dominated by the Roman Empire. And so you have Greek culture and Greek language. What's, what's interesting about the Greek language specifically is that it, that it is probably the most exact 
clear language given. It's like well, English today is not that, not that way, but English is a world language. So just about anywhere you go in the world, people will speak English somewhere. Well, this was the way it was with the Greek language. Everyone was writing in Greek. There was a classical Greek that was used with a lot of the poets and, and writers, but there was a Koine Greek that was a common everyday language. And, and our Bible that were given to us was written in the Koine Greek, very common language. So everyone could read it, everyone could understand it, and it was written in a common way. This is, this is the way God chose. So in the fullness of time, this had happened. You also have Roman roads that were really going all over that part of the world. So you have a language that's pretty steady. You have roads that will go everywhere. And all of this was under the Roman Empire, Pax Romana. You may have heard of that, the Roman peace. And so people could move around, go places and travel on these roads and speak this language like never before. The Greeks, who were also known for their philosophy, were very dissatisfied with their gods. Uh, you, you've heard about the, the gods in Athens and all the worship of gods and the mythology and that sort of thing, but people were becoming increasingly disenchanted with their gods. Jews were dissatisfied with their religious system, particularly their leaders, and the world at large was in great poverty and great stress, a lot of sickness, a lot of disease. Now, you, you think, well, how could that be the fullness of time? How could that be a good thing? But yet God's bringing all of these events for the Jews, for the world at large, to this point to be an announcing the Messiah, the Savior of the world. To me, it's a, a very beautiful thing. And I think of these words, behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. And we see that fulfilled. So we're able to affirm all of this historically. The world does not need to have us prove it. Some people, you'll never be able to prove something, but it, it continues to authenticate by the events that have taken place. So this is the Christmas story historically. But secondly, let's move to doctrinally. And when we use the word doctrine, we mean teaching. What, what difference does this make not just historically, but what difference does this make doctrinally in the teaching that we have? And to me, that's a, that's a great question. It has not really changed any of the teaching from the beginning. If we go back to Moses writing the first five books, nothing has changed about the teaching, but it's been filled out. It's been understood that dots are starting to connect the fullness of time. It shows God's sovereignty and how he has connected all of these dots. And what God did is, at this time, God sent his son. This is the event. God sent his son. John 3.16 is familiar to many of you, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And so when he sent his son, what was the meaning of that? We talked last week a little bit about, well, did he send a great example, a great teacher, a great miracle worker? He was all of that. But God sent his son who was unique. He was God-man. He was God in flesh, which is unique. He was perfect. He was holy, but he was human. And he was made of a woman, 
as described in this text, made under the law, under the system. But to do what? He came to redeem, to rescue, and to restore. So it is a rescue operation. He came to rescue you, to rescue me, and to restore the relationship that originally he had created in the Garden of Eden before it was destroyed by sin. So these, are, these facts, doctrinal facts, are absolutely essential to Christianity. In other words, if you don't have them, you don't have Christianity. If you, if you don't have the fact that what God did in sending his son, they, that Jesus is God and he is man, and that he did atone for our sins by the sacrifice of himself. If you don't have that, you don't have Christianity. You say, well, why are you saying all this? Because there are so many churches and, and groups, even today, that will call themselves Christian and meet for Christmas and celebrate Christmas that don't believe that, that don't believe Jesus is God, or they don't believe that he was really man, or that we really need rescuing. Say, well, I've lived a good life, and it's all back to I've done this, or I've gone to church, and, and I need to go to church this Christmas. But they miss the essence of this story, which is a, a very sad thing today. But let's move on to the practical part, which I, I love this. What difference does this make in my life practically? And to me, the Advent, you've heard this expression before, Advent, Advent means coming. This is Jesus' first coming, and there will be a second Advent when he returns to the earth to take us with him. But there are four basic themes of the Advent. Uh, and, and so I'd say practically what this does, and they're hope, peace, joy, and love. Now, I, I'm not preaching a whole message on this, but I want you to see how this affects me and should affect you. By Jesus coming to this earth and being born in Bethlehem and living a perfect life and laying down a perfect sacrifice and rescuing us gives me hope. It gives me hope because before Jesus came, there was no hope. We we're all dead in our sins. Nothing that we could do about our sin. We we're all going to die in our sins and be separated from God for eternity because of that. Peace. Now, I realize this, that in a lot of the world, there is no peace, but there will be. There will be when he comes again. And you and I can have peace today in our hearts. We can have a settledness. It's different than what the world would offer as peace. But because Jesus has come, we can say peace. Peace, he's offered peace, and he gives us peace. Joy. Joy is the deep-seated satisfaction in Christ. And nothing this world offers can give that same sense of joy. And then love. I think of two ways of love, received and expressed. We receive the love of God in Christ. It changes our lives, changes everything. When you, when you understand how much God's loved you, when you start to think about that, how much he's loved you, it will change your life and how you live because we too express the love of God. And this, to me, impacts my everyday perspective. The birth of Christ for the Christian will change the way you think 
and the way you live every day. This text to me is an, an amazing test. Now, text. When I when I first read verses four and five of chapter four, it's in a little broader context. And I like to read the preceding verses and the verses that follow it. And I want you to see the, the message, really, that Paul is talking to about this birth. So let's go back to Galatians chapter 3, and I'm going to read from verse 28, and the last couple of verses of chapter 3, and then up through verse 7 of chapter 4. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, or Daddy, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You kind of see the whole illustration he uses of being a slave and a son. That if two boys are five years old, they're running around playing together, one could be an, an heir and another a slave. It makes no difference to two five-year-olds. They just kind of, they live that way. But someday, that son is going to take on the responsibility and enjoy sonship and inheritance. And that's part of what is taking place here. So what is the difference? The difference is we have moved from slavery to sonship, from, from being a slave to sin, a slave to the flesh, a slave to this world system, a slave to our own ways, a slave to death, and we have become sons. He has adopted us as sons. And what does that change? It changes everything. It, ch it changes everything about who you are, and it will change everything about the way you live. When you come to maturity to understand this, the way you live is different than the way a slave lives. You're not in bondage. You're not controlled by those passions. You're controlled by his spirit that lives in you. So we are now redeemed. Here's, here's what he's described. Let me just give a few of these out, out of that text. We're all one in Christ. When he says, you're not Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, you're all one in Christ. That doesn't mean that there's not a difference between a man and a woman. It's not his point. He's not saying there's not a difference between someone who's a slave and a free person. But when you come into Christ, we're all one. We're one in Christ. Secondly, we all belong to him. He has ownership over us. This is our new identity. We are Abraham's seed. Now, what he's saying here is not that we're Jews, but when he's talking about the seed, it's the seed of faith. Abraham was much more than the father, really, of the Jewish nation. 
He was the father of all those who would have faith. And this is difference, a difference from works. So we're not of a people who will work our way for eternal life or work our way to God's pleasure, but we believe like Abraham did. And it says that when Abraham believed, God credited it to him as righteousness. So our salvation, our eternal life, our way of living, our way of growing, our way of studying is by faith. He goes on to say, you're now heirs, heirs according to the promise. Remember the covenant promise in the Old Testament? We are now heirs and we are sons. And so you say, well, do we still obey God? Sure. But it's it's not that I'm, I'm motivated to obey God out of fear, but I'm motivated to obey God out of love. That's the difference. When I am a son, I want to please my dad. I want to please my father. I'm not, I'm not living in fear that the slave master will come and whip me to do what's right. And so we live with a certain joy and peace and privilege when he's adopted us into our family. We also have the hope of the final horizon that as there has been a first advent, and this story is about the first advent, the coming of Christ, there will be a second advent. He's coming again. And I, I believe this, that one of the things that helps me personally more than anything else is the anticipation of him coming again. It helps me keep things in perspective. He's coming again. No matter how bad things are, no matter how sick I may be, no matter how pressured I am financially, he's coming again. He's coming again. My father is coming again. He's sending his son. He's coming again. We'll be in heaven together, unified together forever with him in relationship. It's going to happen. And that hope carries us on. So let me ask you this question. What difference does it make? This Christmas story, We've talked about the unfolding story of Christmas. It's great. We read about all the dots that are connected throughout history. We look at it historically. We look at it doctrinally. We look at it practically. What difference does it make to you? Well, it should make all of the difference. It should make all of the difference. It changes everything about who we are and how we live. So as we turn now to the coming week, and to a new year. There are three words I'd like to tie together for you and, and just leave you with these three words. It's a continuation from last week. Beholding, believing, becoming. Beholding Jesus, all that he is, and stop to think and contemplate and let it soak in who he is. Believing. In other words, putting your faith and trust and believing is acting on. It is acting on what you see. It is responding and affirming what you see. And then third, becoming. Because as you do this, God will begin to change your life more and more. And it's not just a one, one time this happens. You don't just behold once and believe once and become once. No, every day I am beholding him and taking it in. Every day I am believing and affirming, and every day I am becoming more like Jesus until the day he comes. This story 
The unfolding story of Christmas changes everything. Father in heaven, may we personalize this message. May it not just be something we celebrate as a tradition, but we glory in and we take joy in this day and every day after it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.